Father, thank you for just the psalm we read this morning. That we're blessed because of what your son has done and our transgressions are not held against us. We have been justified, made righteous because of the righteous work of Christ. And today we desire to exalt you, to worship you, to praise you, to lift your name on high. I pray that our hearts would be soft and responsive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit through your word. That you would lead us, convict us, encourage us, speak to our lives, we pray. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're actually going to cover a huge part of the Joseph narrative as we desire to finish out this week and next the rest of Genesis, which is pretty much not our typical go-to here. But as we look at this story, it really makes sense to end it and end it strong and finish with the whole idea, the whole narrative in view here this morning. And where we've kind of left off is Joseph has risen to a place of power and prominence because of the dreams that were given to Pharaoh and then his ability to interpret those dreams. Joseph, a man through trial and tribulation and trouble who continued to praise God, ultimately was elevated to this high position within the palace because there's famine coming. First seven good years of plenty, then seven years of famine. Now, we're going to enter this story in a position where the famine has finally hit the land. And because of that, it's going to draw his family and this reunion to actually take place. Now, before we get into this narrative, there's something that we need to just simply understand when it comes to studying the scripture. Uh, the scriptures weren't written in one genre. And what I mean by that is when we read Genesis, there's historical narrative, there's genealogy, there's covenantal language, there's story that's given throughout Genesis, and within that story, we also get some imperatives that are actually given, direct commands. It's the same thing with Exodus. You get narrative and you get law. In the Psalms, you get poetry, you get figurative language. Things such as, my God, my rock, none of us in here believe God is a rock in the very literal sense, do we? The language there allows for us to understand this metaphor. And then you move into the New Testament and you get more narrative and parables and in the epistles you get these commands and how to live. And when we come to Scripture... It can be very easy when we get direct commands to go, aha, I get it, I understand. When Paul talks about that all who live godly lives will suffer persecution, there's not a whole lot of guessing game going on and what he means by that is there. We understand directly what he's saying. But as we've seen in studying narrative, which is actually a, a beautiful way to uh, right and for us to have understanding in the story of God and what God is doing. We've seen so far in the life of, life of Joseph, God's sovereign hand, God's providence. We have not yet seen God say, don't sleep with your boss's wife. But in Joseph's case, we've seen that very physically displayed where he fleed youthful lust, where he avoided fornication, where he wouldn't engage in that very act because of the God that he loves and serves. 
We had a whole study on temptation. And as we're drawing out from the grand story of God what he is doing, it's very important that we understand this morning as we read this narrative, there's so many different directions of application within this written story that God has for us. And I can't hit every single one of those. But this morning, because we've already seen God's sovereignty, we've already seen temptation, we've already seen suffering, what I want us to keep in mind is the lies that these brothers have engaged in and the lies that we tell ourselves. And so I want to read this morning verses 1 through about 18 or so, 23, in chapter 42. So this is the narrative portion. And I want you to pick up uh, some of the irony, if you're into that sort of thing, of these brothers in this story. I want you to listen for uh, what I'm going to be hitting at and getting at in this section. I want us to see the lies of these brothers and the impact that it's had on their lives the lives of people around them. But what's even more important for us to grasp is this is not simply going to be a passage that says, don't lie because bad things happen. Because in fact, even though they lied, we're going to see grace enter and move into their lives. We're going to see these guys who almost believe in this karma-esque ideal that this must be happening to us because of what we have done. But really what we see is their internal guilt is overriding them. And as we look at this chapter, it eats at them. And it culminates in this beautiful reunion. So look at chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. First thing I want you to see here is these other brothers, the 10, their lie that they told their father that his favorite son Joseph had been devoured, and here's the coat as proof, the brother that they sold into slavery, that lie had a devastating effect upon their father. He's now turned into a man who's looking at his youngest son Benjamin from his favorite wife, which is a whole nother ordeal, and he's paralyzed. I'm not going to let this kid go with you. I'm not going to trust you with him. And at the end of the day, it doesn't even alleviate the problems of the brothers that they hope to get rid of. Their daddy is still, in a sense, doting on this one as he says, go send those others down. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. <laughs> 
Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we are servants of 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies and put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. When I picture this scene, and I was thinking through it this week, I couldn't help but think about Addie Mae, our youngest. Having three older siblings, Addie Mae can do things that no other two-year-old should be able to do. Mostly because she has seen the example of her older brother and two sisters. So we've got this two-year-old, unlike any two-year-old we've had in the past, she's actually able to get up on the stool, turn on with this huge reach of a farm sink, the faucet, and fill her own water, her own squirt guns, and just a few nights ago, the entire sink with bubbles. So she's too capable for her own good. This same girl, when Jessica bakes cookies, has the capacity after we hand out cookies and put them on the counter, and our other kids, we say, do not touch these or you will die, right? (laughs) We give the imperative just like they're Adam and Eve, and we test our children. Yeah. So here's the problem. Addie does not compute this, or she is just so stinking cute, I don't get it. But either way, she is able to get the stool when no one's looking, get up on the counter. She then grabs cookies and stuffs cookies and she's eating cookies. And I look at her and I go, Addie Mae, what are you doing? Nothing, Daddy. And I look at her hands and they're covered in chocolate. There's crumbs on her face and they're spitting out of her mouth. Did you take a cookie? No, Daddy, I did not take a cookie. And she runs off. And when I actually think about this story, Here in the Bible, this is the great irony that Joseph has sitting before him. Here are his brothers, and they believe the lie that they told their father. They believe the lie that they've told themselves. We are honest men. And he's sitting there going, you guys have cookie all over your face. You're lying to me. You are not honest men. Your brother is not dead. You guys don't even have the greatest or deepest understanding of what is going on here. And Joseph is now sitting in the position that they were sitting in years ago. Joseph has the power to give life or to take life. For them to cry out, to beg, to plead, for him to show mercy. 
And what's interesting is this whole story unfolds. There's some people who love to villainize Joseph in this section because of the way he gets at his brothers. But one of the things you need to understand is that each time, and we didn't read the verse yet, he encounters them, he runs out of the house weeping, runs out of their presence crying. He's a man who is moved. His intentions, from what we can see in here, are to bring some sort of truth because in the moment, in the moment, if he's just hard and he imprisons him, they get what they deserve, but the family doesn't get reunited. If he just simply comes out and says, I'm Joseph, you're all forgiven, he doesn't actually know where their hearts are sitting at. Not that he can't forgive them already, but what does reconciliation look like? And so he's testing them, and it's this painful, hard moment in his life. However, there's a plan and a purpose to what he's doing. But you look at these brothers, and Joseph wants to know, has their hearts changed? From what? Why did they do what they do? Why did they lie? Why do we lie? What does a lie do? Now, if you come here long, you'll know very quickly, we're not a church that is simply saying we're just moralists. You shouldn't lie because it's impractical. We're not these Christians who say, don't lie because that's the way that you're brought up and taught. Or in our family, we're always taught not to lie. Don't lie, Benjamin, as I tell my son, because that's what gentlemen, they do not lie. That's not what we're speaking to our kids. We look at what's actually going on within a lie, and what a lie does is it tramples on the very people that are made in the image of God. The very greatness and dignity that God has instilled because we have his imprint upon us. That when we lie to somebody, we're robbing them of that dignity. Our lying tramples on them and treats them in a way that shows they're unimportant. Lies dehumanize, lies demean, lies treat people as objects, unimportant, undeserving of reality and truth. Now, I want to say pause and think about this for a moment. What was the last thing you lied about? And I want you to ask yourself, why did I lie? It could be one of those little half lies, like she's just my sister, as Abraham said. <laughs> kind of true, really about himself. Maybe some big grand lie, maybe you met somebody. Why do you lie? Why don't you hold on to that for a second? If you're taking notes, we lie to protect ourselves. Lying is more often than not about self-preservation. And I say more often than not because there's always some caveat that you can add in there and say, what about this scenario? What about this situation? But if you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, we lie to protect ourselves. Let's just consider our text. Genesis 37. These brothers, they take Joseph they put him in a pit. They sell him off into slavery. And now they have to go face their father. Why don't they tell him the truth? Why don't they tell him what they did? Because of the shame it would bring upon him? Because of the shame it would bring upon the entire family? Because of the way the father, Jacob, might actually then treat them? 
They're self-preserving. We did something awful. We did something terrible. We did something wrong. Now we have to cover this up because if we're honest about what we did, it's going to land us in a heap of trouble. They had to protect themselves. You see, we get premeditated lies to protect ourselves from trouble that may come our way. We lie in response to other people as well. If you progress into the Exodus story and you get the Israelites and they're out there in the wilderness, there's a time when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and there on Mount Sinai, he's receiving from God and the people get worried about Moses down below. And they go to Aaron who is serving in his priestly-esque kind of role. And they say, Aaron, something's wrong with Moses and God. We need some gods for ourselves to worship because he's not coming down. So Aaron says, give me your gold, give me your silver, and let us fashion an image so that we can worship the Lord. And as they do this, it says that the people rose up to play. It's a very uh, big play on words on the event that took place down there in the valley as Moses is up on the mountain. And God says, Mo, get down there. Something's not right. So Moses comes down and goes, Aaron, what are you doing? First thing Aaron does, the people made me do it. And you weren't coming down fast enough. He's protecting himself. The next thing that he says, I don't know how it happened, but I threw this gold in the fire and this calf jumped out. I'm not kidding. My two-year-old lies better than that. Right? Think about that. His lie was in response to Moses, I just threw it in there and this thing jumped out at me. The lie seeks to treat Moses like a fool. It seeks to trample on him. And it seeks to blame other people. We lie in response to others. Or in the New Testament, the church is off to this fast, explosive start. And the people are gathering together. And they're selling and giving of their goods to help one another out. And there's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And there they want to engage in all the activity that everybody else is doing. So they make a pact with each other. We're going to sell our land. But we're going to hold a portion of it back to us. But shh. And what do they do? They go to Peter and they hand over all that they sold and they said, this is everything we got. This is everything that we gained from our land. It's all yours. We're laying it at your feet. And there in the scriptures, we know that they held some back for themselves. Tragic ending for both of them. And the conversation that is had there is, why did you guys lie to God? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit who is God? Why did you lie? It wasn't even asked of you to do this or to give everything, but they lied to make themselves look better in everybody else's eyes around them. We lie for self-preservation. We lie to prop ourselves up in the eyes of other people. We lie because we want people to think something great of ourselves. And that can be one of the biggest temptations of all when it comes to lying, to impress other people about how much we've accomplished in the past, how much we make in the present, or what we're going to do in the future. And we tell these lies, so then why? 
people will accept and like us. They'll want to be around us. We lie for those various reasons. You could probably go down the list and give a host of other reasons as to why we lie. And what I want to do this morning is at the heart of it is self-preservation and acceptance. How do we deal with that? How do we move past simply don't lie because it's just a command to where then it seeps deep within our hearts and we understand the devastation, we understand the ripple effect that our lies can have in the world around us. If it's to save face, what is the root of lying? See what it is, it's unbelief. We tell lies because we do not believe that God is all-powerful and that God is in control. We begin to lie, to scheme, to manipulate, to make things go our way and happen the way that we want. We lie to ensure that we're cared for and provided for. After that treacherous act those brothers did, they lied to make sure life would go on as normal. Aaron lies to his brother to not seem like the bad guy. Ananias and Sapphira, they lie because they want to be seen as something great in other people's eyes. We don't believe that God is in control and will take care of our other, every need. We also lie because we don't want to offend people. What's that really about at the end of the day? The waiter comes over. You've just been complaining for five minutes on how terrible the food is. How was it? Everything's great. <laughs> so good. So awesome. Why? <laughs> I don't want to be a pain. I don't want to be a problem. I still want to make it about me. The root, once again, is unbelief that God is enough, that he is enough for our approval, that he is enough for our acceptance. What does God say about lying? A very famous passage, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. God hates lying so much, he mentions it twice in that verse. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying originated with Satan there in the garden. We know that both from Romans 1 as well as from the Genesis story that we have. Lying creates all kinds of problems in our lives. And when we lie, it's not adding goodness and pleasure to our lives, but it's actually robbing you of it. If you just sort of look back on our story here this morning, it robbed their brother or their father of, their, of his son. As they committed this heinous act, this evil deed of sending their brother off to Egypt and then lying about it, it also caused their father to go into a very fear-based mode to where when Simeon, his third, is left in jail from what we're reading here this morning, 
And the only way to get him out of jail, this is a grown man, is to send Benjamin down. That's all they have to do. If you progress through chapter 42, you will read that that Jacob says, no way on earth am I going to send him down with you to rescue Simeon. I'm going to hold on to this son because he is all I have and he's taken from me. I will go to the pits of Sheol. Later, when the famine has hit such a huge part in their area and region and they need to go back down, he's hesitant. He won't do it without the pledge of Judah. He doesn't want to risk his son. It absolutely paralyzed their father, Jacob. Not to mention the tremendous amount of guilt that the lie had created Obviously, the act as well, but the lie creates, the weight that it creates on their lives of now surely we are found out. Because lying creates a false reality and lets us, and causes us to hide in shame from others. Lying seeks to accuse us, consigns us to guilt, And it presents this fake world that we engage and live in. So what are we doing with all this? And how does lying truly get into us? If you turn to Psalm 38, 1 through 22, it's a bit of a doozy, but it's extremely important for us here this morning. I wish I could tell you the reason David penned this. I have uh, numerous assumptions, but they're just assumptions. However, as we read it, we know that he's in some serious trouble. It says in verse one, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and in his mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said only, let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. 18 is a crux in this psalm. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. My haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He talks about whatever his sin is. And with David, pick your poison. Murder, he did it. Adultery, he did it. Pride, he did it. Lying, he did it. 
mean, just go ahead and pick one of them. Family issues and problems. Him and his sons lived it. You can pick whatever you want in there. And for whatever reason, Psalm 38 gets panned. And he says, my bones are burning within me with the heavy weight of what sin has done in my life. And you can get the same conclusion here in Genesis 42, 43, and 44. Because over and over and over again, the brothers are saying, surely God is repaying us for the evil and the wicked that we have done. And it's eating them up on the inside. Verses 21 and 22, they said, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the stress of his soul when he pleaded with us and yet he would not, and we would not listen. Therefore, the distress has come upon us. Reuben's words, verse 22. Now comes the reckoning for this, that is Joseph's blood. Verse 28, then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned and behold, it is even in my sack and their hearts sank and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Then in Genesis 44, 16, God has found out our iniquity. We see that their recognition in God's providence in these moments that God has been seeking them out and what happens the weight of what they have done, the lies that they believe, the selling off of their brother, it brings them to this place where their outward brokenness of the world and the inward brokenness of them inside are pushed together and they're in a place saying, God has found us out. They're confessing. Just like the psalmist there in verse 18, I will confess unto the Lord. Martin Luther remarked on this set of scripture, they will confess more than they have committed. Guilt-ridden persons are known to think, if I had to do it over again. Derek Kinder, another commentator, said they assumed collective guilt. Although only one among them would be found guilty, they stand or fall together, perhaps another sign of a rekindled family. You see, in this story where Joseph puts them through the ringer, and if you don't know it, it's absolutely fascinating. As you read how Joseph maneuvers through it and is bringing his brothers to him and is bringing them to this moment where Benjamin is coming down, the son, his brother, the son of Jacob, and they're being reunited and they set Benjamin up. And we're gonna look at this next week as we see the redemption of Judah from Genesis 38 and that horrible scene that I promised we'd get back to to his redemption, and even that he's coming from there, that the line of Christ would come from him. We see that God is moving through this family, and he's using Joseph to unite in this family, but they're going to go through some hard and difficult scenarios to get there, but their guilt is overriding them, and their brokenness comes out and says, we need help. We need help. You see, the cure for lying is not to behave better, but to believe better. Don't lie, you'll get in trouble. That's not what the gospel says. You need not lie, Christ gives you all the approval you've ever needed. That's what the gospel says. If we get to the heart, not just simply of the crux of this story of why they lied, but also of why we lie, often to find approval from other people, to look good in others' eyes, and if we truly believe the gospel, we don't need to lie because we've already been more accepted than we ever dared believed. 
That is the beauty of the gospel. It totally gets rid of the whole idea that I have to lie to save face, to preserve myself. When Jesus becomes the all-satisfying, all-consuming, what we care about and what matters most, it'll free us up to love people more and finding the need for their approval less. See, the cure for lying, if you're sitting down with your children, your grandchildren, and you're talking with them, is not that phrase that we always say, if you just didn't lie to me, you wouldn't be in as much trouble. I mean, I have used that so many times, so many times. But if I sit down with my daughter, because at the end of the day, do you know why my oldest lies to me? Because she hates to disappoint me. She wants my approval, my acceptance, and my love. And so if she can conceal the wrong, maybe she can remain in good standing. What she needs to know is that no matter what she tells me, her standing is not going to change. I'm going to love her the exact same regardless of whatever thing she has done to her brother or sister or to the house or the animals or whatever. I'm going to care for her. What she needs to know is where her love is rooted in. And it is the same with God. When we begin to finally understand that there's nothing we can do to remove us from the presence of his love and his kindness, that then opens up the doors for us to freely come to him and confess our sin, to confess our faults to him. For we see this in Genesis chapter 44. It's really intriguing, and I want you to turn over there as we're looking at this story. In Genesis 44, Joseph's creative idea was to give all the brothers grain and food. But in the youngest brother, Benjamin, his full brother, he would put this metal cup, his cup, in his back. The one that his father was so terrified of getting left behind. And as he did this, he let them walk away and then he has his servant chase them down. And he says, one of you guys stole from me. And they're like, no, we didn't. We didn't take anything. So bag by bag by bag, they search him. And then what happens? They come to Benjamin's. And they said, <sighs> they rent their clothes. They're crying out loud. And all the brothers go back to Joseph's palace. And Joseph says, listen, guys. All of you are free except for the one who had this in their bag. And then we get to this story and it says in verse 15, Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What guilt is Judah talking about? Did they take that cup? No. He's not admitting to the guilt of the cup. But he's saying God has found out guilt. What guilt? Read the whole narrative in 42. God has found out our guilt. They're worried this whole time that they've finally been exposed. What's going to happen to them? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. At this moment, every one of those brothers but Benjamin had an out to self-preserve. They had a way to come out from trouble. They could have said, yep, he took it, he did it. But instead, they admit and confess their guilt. It's a 
pastor I like to listen to, his name's Matt Chandler, and he says this when it comes to confession. When people walk in honesty about their fears, shortcomings, and needs, not in thoughtless disobedience, but in grace-based freedom and forgiveness, they reveal a deep understanding of the gospel. Basically, he's saying when people come to a place where they're able to say, I'm not okay, I'm weak, I have sin, I have troubles, and I'm confessing that to you, God. When we're able to confess in community with our brothers and sisters, it means that we're actually beginning to understand the gospel and what it means that he is strong and I am weak. That he is perfect and he has loved me perfectly and he has forgiven me perfectly. And it's okay to be in that place of, I'm not okay. But because of his perfect sacrifice and what he has done, he has changed me. Listen, in this chapter, in the Psalms, throughout the New Testament, we see this idea of when we sin, we ought to confess our faults. First, to God, because when we sin, we ultimately sin against God. All sin is treason against God. When David sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and the whole town of Israel, in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. He recognizes the treason his sin has been to God. So we're to confess our sin to God. Now, it seems a little bit silly. Why would I confess my sin to God if he's already forgiven me? Does that seem like a conundrum? Why in the world would I have to go relive this and be a part of this and drudge anything up that has already been forgiven? Listen, in confession, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God about our sin. We're acknowledging it and we're repenting of it. It's humble contrition before God. Faith-filled appropriation of the grace of reconciliation and heartfelt gratitude for what God has done in us. Last week, you guys are getting lots of first daughter stories. Ava, we're out at this birthday party at our friend's property and they have lots and lots of acreage. And my daughter loves rocks. She loves them. And they have rocks everywhere. And so she picks them up and they say, yeah, you can take those home. And there's some other ones. That's their kids' rocks. And no, let's leave those rocks here. Well, we get home. A few hours later, Jessica walks out and goes, look at this rock Ava brought with her. And the first thing I want to do is congratulate her because I have no idea how she took that without us noticing and got it out of the car and back into the house. So like good parents, we take the rock and we just slap it there on the dinner table while they're outside playing. And we're just waiting for her to come in. We're like, where did this thing come from? Uh, uh, I took it. All right, Ava. I'm thankful that you were honest with us, but now you gotta go talk to the people that you took it from. Oh, daddy, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes, baby, you gotta go do this. So the next day was a Sunday and it was at church and we shared a little bit. I think Jessica did with the family and they knew that this was coming, but they weren't gonna initiate. And so Ava goes forward and it was so neat to watch because in this very timid and fearful way, I mean, she's seven. She's scared to death. It is just a rock, and they have millions of these things. We're teaching her a lesson in this. She goes to them, and it was so neat to watch what happened, and it's the only reason I can even use this story here this morning, is the person's heart who she took it from was just broke for Ava. 
was just soft, looking at her and forgiving and loving and expressing her care for my daughter and weeped with my daughter in that moment. You see, I looked at Ava afterwards and I said, Ava, do you know what you did there was so good? You were able to not have to avoid them or hide from them or run from them, but you can stand before them because you confessed and experienced that closeness and that love and care. And did you see their reaction? It wasn't one of hatred and anger. It was one of love and acceptance. I understand that in Christ you are righteous the moment you're saved, that you have been justified. But I also know John 1. I also know, Father, forgive us our debts when Jesus teaches us to pray as we forgive our debtors. I know the importance of confession. And what confession does is it brings us into this place of he's God, he's the creator, and we can humbly and boldly approach him and know that we are forgiven. As the story of Joseph and his brothers play out and as we end here this morning, does Joseph just dismiss their crimes like it never happened? No, he does not. He is forever the man who is sold into slavery. But he's a man who then is able to forgive his brothers, to elevate them and to give them land and to care for them and to forgive them. And it wasn't just some temporary forgiveness. It extends beyond even when their father dies in Genesis 50, as we'll see next week. This morning, consider the lies we tell and ask ourselves, why? You don't have to lie because you're more accepted than you could ever dare believe. You're more loved, you're more cared for, you're more approved than you'll ever know because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you don't have that first fundamental truth, sure, you're gonna go the rest of your life lying, trying to cover up, to mask, to be somebody that you're not, entangled in a web of lies, trying to live out false realities. But God has been able to give us this new life in Christ Jesus because of what he has done. It's freeing, it's amazing, it's incredible. Praise God for that, let's pray.